books of the Bible and hear what God has said. To brief you on the book at this point just a little bit, Mark, who is Simon Peter's secretary, if you will, has made his purpose for writing very clear and apparent from chapter 1, verse 1, wherein he writes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark believes and writes to the end of making you believe that Jesus is God himself, that he came to absorb the wrath that's due to us himself in order to reconcile us to himself. Mark sets out to persuade us of this by walking us through to sort <laughs> he walks us through sort of a highlight reel, if you will, of Jesus's life. It's kind of a sports center segment, if you will. He's picking out really highlights of Jesus's life. It's action packed and it's fast moving. And he shows us early on that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, that he exercises divine authority, that he forgives sins, advances his kingdom, and replaces religion with himself. We saw last week that not everyone that crowds around Jesus is a disciple of Jesus. We made this distinction between the crowd and the called, and that theme is going to continue on into our text today, wherein we'll see that true disciples do not obstruct or oppose Jesus, are united in Jesus, have been taken by Jesus, and are obedient to Jesus. I've actually made it kind of simple today. So if you can remember that, which is our one big thing, you can remember the outline. Which true disciples do not obstruct or oppose Jesus in verses 20 through 22. And then we're going to drop down to verses 29 and 30 and check that out there. Then we'll see that true disciples are united in Jesus and cover verses 23 through 26. True disciples have been taken by Jesus, verses 27 and 28. And that true disciples are obedient to Jesus in the last four verses in 31 through 35. Now before we get started and and pray and really move into the text, I need to to share something with you for the purpose of illustrating something else. And it's going to sound a little bit weird at first, but but hang in there with me. Uh, It will make sense in a second. Um, And I guess that not so secret or odd thing is that I I really enjoy a good sandwich. I don't know about you. But I love sandwiches, and uh, typically my wife is kind enough. I don't have to make them myself. She usually does it for me. Uh, and I have that problem where you go to the fridge and you open it up, and there's like, there's nothing in here. And then two seconds later, Chelsea's like, no, you take all these ingredients, and you put them together and make something new. And, and what I, what the curious thing about like sandwiches is they're never defined by the bread, right? Unless it's like a fancy pretzel bun or, or something like that. But even then, it's usually what's in the middle that defines the whole sandwich. So, for instance, if you have chicken in the middle, it makes it uh, a chicken sandwich. If you have ham in the middle, it makes it uh, a ham sandwich. In my wife's opinion, if you put cucumber in the middle, it can be a cucumber sandwich. But in my opinion, that's not, it's not really a sandwich. It's some, something else. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But I tell you all this not, not to make you hungry but to bring your attention to the literary sandwich that's in our text today. I don't know if you saw it when I read it earlier. But one of Mark's favorite literary techniques is to sandwich, if you will, one story inside of another story. And what what happens when he does that is he signifies the relationship between the two stories and by their combination succeeds in making an entirely new and powerful point. In the two bread parts, if you'll allow me this analogy to continue, those around Jesus will attempt to bind or seize him. Whereas in the central, the meat part, if you will, 
Jesus binds the strong man and frees his captives to become followers of the strong son of God. So we might call this sandwich before us today a true disciple sandwich or a strong man sandwich. If we want to really get at what Mark's trying to communicate to us. He's contrasting for us in the end. The associates of Jesus who believe that they have claim on him with the true followers of Jesus that recognize his claim is on them. He's showing us that any who obstruct or stand opposed to the mission of reconciliation are in league with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they are not part of the family of God. Mark is showing us that true disciples do not obstruct or oppose Jesus, are united in Jesus, have been taken by Jesus, and are obedient to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Let us not just hear it this morning, but let us understand it and be changed by it. Father, this morning, turn, turn our sighs into songs. Transform our cynicism into servanthood. Make our grumblings into praise. We ask all this in Jesus' triumphant and compassionate and beautiful name. Amen. Let's look at the crowd in verse 20, if you will. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So once again, as we saw last week, the crowd is in Jesus's way. I mean, they are all up in his business. The man can't even eat. And I've eaten in some pretty tight spots before, and I'm sure maybe you have too. The immediate image I get when somebody, they say that Jesus can't even eat. I think about being on an airplane in the coach section. If you've ever had the in-flight meal, they have that weird kind of tray thing that falls down in front of you. They give you the tiny little meal. You've got your arms in there close together trying to get after whatever it is they've placed before you. Now, that's pretty tight, but you can manage to eat. So how pressed up against Jesus must all these people have been so that he could not even eat? We have the same thing as last week in our text right here, right? The crowd is treating Jesus like a, black, like a retail store on Black Friday, right? They're concerned about not Jesus or his message, but about getting something for themselves. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? Remember last week we said true disciples ask, what can I give? What can I give? What can I give? The crowd is again an obstacle rather than an asset to Jesus' mission. And so I ask a question that's familiar to most of you, because I think it's important. Why are you following Jesus this morning? For his stuff, for what he can give you, or for him? Friends, if Jesus isn't your highest love, then something else is your treasure, and that something else is your God. If you just do Christian-y stuff, but do not love Jesus, you're an obstacle rather than an asset to the advance of the gospel. So I ask, why do you follow Jesus? The crowd isn't the only group standing in Jesus' way, though. He's also opposed by his biological family in verse 21. Look there with me. And when his family heard it, they, were, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus' family hears about his ministry and concludes, that boy's crazy. They want to seize him, to apprehend him, to arrest him, to take hold of, take custody of Jesus. 
They want to put him in a straitjacket. Put him in a padded cell. He's out of his mind, they think. I believe he's putting himself in danger because of the claims of his ministry. They've upset the apple cart, if you will, of the established order. I mean, people, after all, are plotting to kill Jesus right now. If he doesn't stop the madness, he might even endanger his life. See here, those closest to Jesus don't understand him or his mission. They think his obedience to God's call in his life is madness. And I don't think they're unlike many today who participate in Christian activities and put on the Christian veneer and come to church, but would consider the person that's called to gospel ministry crazy. I think a great example of this comes uh, in response of parents when their sons or daughters express a desire to serve Christ on the international mission field. They're often met with the response, can't you serve Jesus here? Aren't there people in America that don't know Jesus? After all, if you go over there, you could get a disease. You could die. Every effort is made to stop the madness. I think this is a a tragic truth about Christianity in America today. Our churches are filled with men and women who are more concerned with safety and so-called secular sanity than with the cause of Christ. We have our minds set on us rather than other. And consequently, we ignore completely or pay little attention to making disciples of all nations. Church, Jesus didn't die for you to stay safe or comfortable or so that you could feel good about yourself. Jesus died so that you might die. He died so you might lose your life and therefore save it. He died so that you might say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And reconciling us to himself, Jesus saves us out of the world into his body. That's the church and onto mission. The mission of reconciling people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. The mission of filling the earth with worshipers through the proclamation of the gospel. Be fruitful and multiply. Yet how often do we, like the biological family of Jesus, see obedience to the call of God in someone's life as madness? Friends, it's not crazy to follow Jesus. If following God's will for your life means getting sick, then get sick. If it means being killed, then die. It's no insanity to offer perfect obedience to the God that raises the dead. I mean, how right was Jim Elliot when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You can't keep this life. You give it up as you gain heaven. You gain Christ, that which you cannot lose. In Jesus, there is no fear because death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Insanity is not found in obedience to God, but in disobedience. 
Those that stand opposed to the advance of the kingdom of God, they're the ones that need a straitjacket, not the disciples, not Jesus. So how many of us, if we're honest, really need straitjackets this morning? Friends, I, I encourage you to think with the mind of Christ. Jesus isn't only opposed by the crowd. He's not only opposed by his biological family, but he's also opposed by the religious leaders and the scribes. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. The ministry of Jesus is now ballooned enough to cause religious leaders to come down from Jerusalem to see what the big deal is or what all the commotion is about. Apparently, they quickly come to the conclusion that Jesus is possessed by Satan, right? Beelzebul here is is ultimately just another name for the devil. And so they're articulating that Jesus cast out demons by the power of demons. They're saying that Jesus is a demon-possessed rebel that's powered by evil. They're dangerously close to committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is this famous unforgivable sin. This eternal sin can be defined as knowingly, willingly, persistently attributing to Satan and the structures of evil the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll we'll look at Jesus' immediate response here in a second, but, but drop down there to verses 29 and 30, and let's read his comments on this sin. He says this, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The scribes are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy, it's it's simply the opposite of praise. It is insulting or slandering God. It's to speak of God as evil. I think the verb here is important. It's the same in 22 and 30. It's an imperfect verb. It means they were saying or they were continually saying so the scribes are consistently looking at the supremely good one and calling him the evil one. Thus, a person commits the eternal sin when he or she speaks against God, the Holy Spirit, verbally and continually with willful and malicious intent that reveals a hardened heart that is beyond the possibility of repentance. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an expression of defiant hostility toward God. It is the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and action. I think Burkhoff is helpful. He, He says this, The sin itself consists not in doubting the truth, nor in a sinful denial of it, but in a contradiction of it that goes contrary to the conviction of the mind, to the illumination of the conscience, and even to the verdict of the heart. All that to say, if you are worried that you've committed this sin, then you haven't. That's kind of anticlimactic, right? If you're worried about committing this sin, you haven't. It's a sin of full knowledge. It's an ongoing sin. And so if your heart responds to the correction of the Holy Spirit, it's evidence that you haven't committed it. After all, the eternal sin is rooted in unbelief. So a Christian can't commit it. Further, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian... You can decide to follow Jesus, and that would be proof positive that you hadn't committed it. Back to verse 22 now. 
The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul, that's Satan, and the prince of demons is the one by whom he casts out demons. The scribes are opposing Jesus and they're attempting to obstruct his ministry by way of slander. Notice here, they don't dispute the power of Jesus, but the source of his power. They can see he has power, but they don't believe. I think there's this mistaken view abroad today in our culture that if only we saw the undisputed miracles of Jesus, then we would believe or believe more. The scribes, however, have seen precisely such evidence, yet they do not believe. In other words, faith is not automatic or inevitable or a necessary consequence of witnessing the acts of God. The words and deeds of Jesus are indeed evidence of God's presence, but the evidence demands a decision from the one that witnesses it as to its source and significance. Faith judges that a person and work of Jesus stand in continuity with the character of God and hence have saving significance. Whereas disbelief judges that a person, that the person and the work of Jesus derive not from God, but as the scribes suggest in this instance, from the devil. Put more simply, belief in God is not a matter of seeing miracles, but a matter of experiencing grace. Faith, belief is ultimately the gift of God. True disciples follow Jesus as a result of being wakened from the dead, By the sound of his voice and the power of his word. Friends, the power of God has been proven in the resurrection of Jesus. The glory of God is displayed in his church. The word of God is proclaimed to you this morning. Have you believed? The scribes have hardened their hearts. And suggested that Jesus' miracles are fueled by evil. And so he responds in verse 23. And he called them to himself and said to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan and is himself divided, he cannot stand. But is coming to an end. Jesus' logic is unassailable here. I mean, he says, why would Satan act against Satan? That's dumb, right? Why would any kingdom fight against itself? If it does that, it's not going to be able to stand. It's not going to be able to move forward. This is true across a lot of lines. Pick your context. Business, sports, family. Division will ultimately lead to destruction. Listen to me here. The church is not exempt from this rule. In fact, I believe it's why many churches die. It's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all, listen, agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. It says something similar in the same vein in um, Titus 3.10. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. It's why he includes fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions among the evident works of the flesh in Galatians 5. Division leads to destruction. 
If the church then, the body of Christ, is divided against itself, then it will not stand. Now don't get me wrong here. God's purpose in the gospel will be achieved. God will get his glory. However, the question is, what local churches will be a part of helping him get that glory? Who will be a part of the mission of God? When local churches bicker and fight over tertiary, secondary issues, when they are divided on matters unrelated to sound doctrine, they cease to display the glory of God and disfigure the body of Christ. When we as individuals in the church think of our needs and preferences as more important than everyone else's, we reveal that we are more concerned with ourselves and our pride than with Christ. When we refuse to consider others more significant than ourselves and to think with the mind of Christ, to submit to the will of Christ, then we have refused our place in the body of Christ. And this refusal to be unified divides. Divides the body and dismembers it. As the Beatty has said recently, when we fail to submit ourselves to Jesus and other Christians, we torture the body of Christ. So the question is, how can we make sure we're not divided? And Paul shows us the key to this. He says the key to Christian unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. He says this, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care, that's important, same care or equal concern for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, All rejoice together. Unity will exist in the church when its members have the same care for one another. This means caring for each and every member equally. It means loving each and every member of the body of Christ equally. It means loving every member of your local church to the same degree. It means loving the the stinky kid as much as the well-dressed guy. Love you, Taryn. I like to pick on Taryn. She doesn't stink. She's just my friend. That's a difficult task, you say. Trust me, I know, but I'm telling you. Jesus has said, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. Christian, God has equipped you to love much by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's enabled you to love others as yourself. Yes, you'll fail. But you must repent quickly. Remember the gospel and strive to love others as Jesus has loved you. Are you unified? Do you have equal concern for one another? Are you building up the body of Christ? Or are you tearing it apart? Is your mouth filled with gossip and slander and words of division? Or is it filled with grace and salt and words of life? True disciples are united in Jesus. They're united in Jesus because they've been taken by Jesus. Look with me at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man, guess what, is strong. When I read this text, I think of uh, Brock Lesnar and Hulk Hogan, the Incredible Hulk. And uh, if you're a little bit older, even Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? He was the Terminator, then the Governator. Now he's the strong man here. 
That's the kind of strength we're talking about. I mean, imagine trying to break into one of these dudes' houses. You better have a plan, otherwise you're going to get worked. No one's getting into their house unless they're incapacitated. And the point of the short parable is simple. Satan is the strong man. And Jesus is the one breaking into his house, his realm, to bind and plunder him. Indeed, Satan is the prince of this world, and he is powerful. The structures of evil are stronger than any man, and so men are held in bondage. They're stuck in the house of the strong man. Until. Until the God man, Jesus, ties up that strong man. You see, Jesus is stronger than the strongest. While the powers of evil are mighty, they are but weakness when compared to the strength of God. Friends, the anthropomorphic fingernail of God holds more power than the entire enterprise of evil. Jesus binds the strong man. He binds Satan. He plunders his house. Jesus steals those that are his from the domain of darkness and does so by way of a Roman cross. Jesus lives the life we should have lived. And he dies the death we should have died. Jesus has made himself your substitute. He lived a perfect life and credits it to your account. He died the death that you, your imperfect life, that it deserved, that it earned you. He gives you what he deserves and he takes what you deserve. That's not fair. That's the scandal of grace. That's the scandal of the cross. He who was sinless took our sins on himself, became sin, became a curse for us so that we might inherit the promise of peace with God. The Lamb of God died so that we might become his righteousness. The creator suffered so we might be made a new creation. The God-man was torn apart so that we might be knit together and united in him. Jesus died so that we might be forgiven. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. This verse is so often overlooked in this context. Everybody wants to know about the eternal sin. But I think part of the point of this is the eternal forgiveness. Jesus has bound the strong man. And his grace knows no limits. Maybe you're one of those folks that think you're, I'm too wicked. I'm too vile for the grace of God. Think again, friend. I was reading through Hebrews 11 the other day. They commonly call it like the hall of faith. It's, it's a great pun, right, on hall of fame. Love puns. But I realized it's more a, a record of some wretched folks. I mean, the chapter includes David. Yes, he was king. That's good and great. But he also raped a married woman and murdered her husband. Rapist, murderer. Moses killed a man with his bare hands. Murderer. Jephthah committed the unthinkable evil of turning his daughter into a sacrifice. Sidebar, if you're interested in that, we preached it when we went through Judges. It's really an encouraging text, so check it out. The point here is that you're not too wicked or vile for the grace of God. Jesus continually takes vile men and women who are capable of unthinkable evil, and you are capable of unthinkable evil. He sets his love on them. He's set his love on you, and he uses them, and he'll use you to bring glory to himself. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. He wrote a ton of our New Testament, 
This guy sought and killed Christians. That's plural with an S. More than one. Listen to what he writes in 1 Timothy verses 13 through 15. Though formerly I was a, what's that word? Blasphemer. Persecutor. An insolent opponent. But I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Friends, being made right with God does not depend on you being better. But on receiving the mercy and the grace of God. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Came to bind the strong man and steal away those that are his. To take hold of those that he would call to himself. Has he taken hold of you? Has he stolen your heart away from sin? True disciples have been taken by Jesus. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers, well, they're outside seeking you. Remember, this is the story picked up again. His mother and his brothers think that he's out of his mind and they're seeking to seize him and get him in a straitjacket, right? And though most, if not all, of his family will eventually come to faith and become true disciples, currently, they stand outside. Not only are they physically outside the house that Jesus is in, but they are spiritually outside of the house or family of God. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those that sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is using an ordinary circumstance to teach an incredible spiritual lesson. Bloodlines do not include anyone in the family of God. Just because mom and dad were Christians doesn't mean that you are. The only thing that includes one in the family of God is relationship with Jesus Christ. This passage ought to be a chilling reminder that proximity to Jesus, Christian things, even blood relationship to Jesus, is no substitute for allegiance to Jesus in faith and following. So ultimately, there are only two kinds of people. Those that sit inside at Jesus' feet and those that stand outside. Discipleship depends on being in Jesus' presence and doing God's will. So let me ask you, have you been with Jesus this week? Are you living each moment in his presence? If those around Jesus, even the Holy Family, are placed under question, then Mark places all of us under question. Especially those that have grown up amid the trappings of Christianity, whether through baptism or Christian homes or confirmation or church attendance or charitable giving. Mark is placing you under question. Are you a true disciple or are you just around Jesus? True disciples are obedient to Jesus. They're not around him. They live like him in his presence. 
And so we've seen this morning our literary sandwich makes a trenchant, though unspoken, statement about true versus false discipleship. False disciples attempt to restrain Jesus from his mission or redirect him to another. To seek to avert Jesus from his mission is satanic. I mean, even even the saved can be guilty of it sometimes, right? That's why when Peter tells Jesus, hey, you shouldn't go to the cross. That's why Jesus says to him, out of my sight, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. False disciples obstruct and oppose Jesus. False disciples try to seize and bind Jesus, but Jesus will not be bound. He ties up the strong man and he plunders him. True disciples do not obstruct or oppose Jesus, are united in Jesus, have been taken by Jesus, and are obedient to Jesus. They are Jesus' true family. And so I leave you with this question. Whose house are you in? The home of the tied-up strong man or the house of the unbound God-man? Not yet Christian. If you've decided to follow Jesus, I encourage you to talk with someone, whether it's me or or someone else, about that. You can do that during this time when we sing a hymn of response or during the week. I want to put you on the path of true discipleship so you don't just have an emotional experience. I don't just want you to be around Jesus or to have good thoughts about Jesus, but for him to be your, your treasure, to be what's precious to you. Christian. Aren't you glad you are a part of the family of God this morning? And so, church, I say, let us sing our hymn of response together. Amen.